This is the uh, fourth installment of The Return, that topic, which again, just to remind you, the whole point of getting and facing, dealing with the stones I talked about, those issues, is in preparation for Jesus' return. Whether you uh, will be alive when it happens, you know, I'm kind of old, so I may not be here, or if uh, whether you're here or not, it's still a point of getting ready. And all the more, if you uh, are young and could very well be living all the way to 2048. Uh, remember that last episode, part three, I went through the time frame that Jesus gave us, something he has done many times in the Bible, giving time frames. And again, just to remind you, that's not like hard numbers. It's, it's, uh, and an approximate based on what he said about the fig tree coming back to life. <clears throat> so, you know, it could be his his counting or his calendar may be a little different than ours, obviously, but it's so it's not hard and fast, but it's it's an approximate, it's a time frame. So um, these are definitely things to pay attention to. This uh, particular uh, part, part four, I'm going to talk about a very dangerous teaching related to the end times and to Jesus' return. It's dangerous because it produces uh, apathy. In other words, people who believe this don't really concern themselves about being ready as Jesus talked about. Again, go back in especially chapter 25, the things he said there about uh, people, the, the, two, the, the two sets of virgins, one ready, one not ready. We think that would wake people up, but sadly, it, it doesn't seem to. So <clears throat> there is a very deceptive and very dangerous teaching related to the end times that has become something of the standard belief among mostly Christians in Western culture. It's called the pre-tribulation, that is before the tribulation, the great tribulation, rapture or removed from. By the way, I, know, I may say this later in my notes here, but I just want to be sure I say it now. The, the tribulation is not about necessarily the church being tribulated. It's Jesus tribulating the wicked, the Antichrist and his followers. About approximately 18 judgments are poured out, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Now, when, that, when those things start happening and people get angry, they're going to take out their anger on somebody. Well, they can't take it out on Jesus because he hasn't returned yet. So they can't hunt him down and do harm to him. So they're going to do harm to his followers. So the Great Tribulation is not about Christians being tribulated, although we will be. But the main focus is the Lord doing it to his enemies. And even that, at that, his whole point is to uh, break people's hearts. He's not trying to deliberately hurt them. He's trying to break their hearts. He's trying to bring them to repentance. But that's another teaching. At any rate, the pre-tribulation rapture. And in this 24th chapter of Matthew is one of the texts that's used to support this terrible teaching. Here it is. Uh, Matthew 24, 40 and 41. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken away and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. And one will be taken, one will be taken and the other left. 
Now, even though according to the pre-tribulation rapture, the rapture is somewhat a secret event, which, as I pointed out in the last, the last uh, episode, Jesus and Paul say it is not. One of the main points of this teaching is that Christians are going to be taken off the earth before the Great Tribulation. In other words, no suffering. Just zip, bang, we're out of here, no problems. <laughs> and one can see how this may seem to be true based on the above passage, the one I just read, until this passage is put back into its context. Then it becomes perfectly clear that this passage does not support this false teaching. Here is the passage in its context. By the way, context is really important when we read the Bible anywhere in the Bible. So, this is beginning in verse 37. As it was in the days of Noah, boy, that's important, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken away, the other left. Two women will be grinding a handmill. One will be taken, and the other will be left. Quite simply, what happened in the days of Noah? Was Noah and his family the ones taken to heaven? Were they the ones taken away? Were they removed uh, in any way from the judgment of the flood? No. They went through the, the judgment of the flood. Certainly, they had some protection from the flood in the ark, which they would not have had if they had not been, if they had been deceived and unprepared for it. But Noah and his little family were still in the worldwide judgment of the flood for, their, for they had jobs Yahweh wanted them to do. Secondly, and most importantly, who was taken away in the flood? Well, even if one isn't familiar with the story in Genesis, Jesus tells us who was taken away by the flood in this passage. It was the people who were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. That is, just going about their normal lives, not knowing what was about to come upon them due to being deceived and unprepared. And it is these people, not knowing his family, who the flood took all away. So it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at Jesus' return. Two men will be in the field, and two women will be grinding meal, and the ones who did not watch out that they weren't deceived, and neither did they prepare themselves, like paying attention to those 12 stones I talked about, to endure and to overcome, pay attention to Revelation 2.7, 2.11, 2.17, 2.26, 3.12, 3.21, where Jesus drives home this point, will be taken away, that is, destroyed by what unfolds. There's absolutely no rapture, no removal from this planet of Jesus' followers before the Great Tribulation in this passage. In fact, it is clear that the taken away ones are the deceived and the unprepared. <clears throat> we could also add the disobedient those who refuse to love Jesus and do life his way, not those who weren't deceived and thus prepared to follow Jesus at all costs, even the cost of their lives. 
Christians are not exempt from the storm, if I can call it that. That's what Jesus called it, that he spoke of in Matthew 7. Neither is Jesus applying the issue of the storm only to the lost. Everyone, Christians and non-Christians, are going to experience the storm when it comes. Not if it comes, it is coming. It is coming. It's going to pour down. Those who survive it will be those who built their lives on Jesus' words and not on anything else. If you build it on sand, if you build it on the philosophies of this world, if you ignore those 12 stones, your house is going to come down with a great crash. Note also Jesus doesn't speak in terms of if the storm comes, but when it comes. Here's a brief history of this unbiblical and perilous teaching. In the mid-1800s, as the Industrial Revolution was at its peak uh, of cataclysmic upheaval and destruction of the simple culture and society of England, a time when people were leaving their villages and flocking to the cities and factories to find work, a time in which thousands of orphans were deposited onto the streets of the major cities because parents could not afford to take care of them, People were downtrodden and languishing in squalid living conditions. There were no unions, so pay was low and hours were long. Driven by greed, the factory and business owners successfully created a new form of slavery and serfdom. People were profoundly struggling, to say the least. There was nothing to say how many hours you worked. You worked, period. Children even worked in the factories. It was into this very, very fertile of despair and desperation in which people were yearning for some sort of relief and salvation, some glimmer of hope of something different than the shabbiness and the stress they were living in, that this false teaching came. Hope had been crushed by the money-worshipping wealthy who had no care or concern for their workers. You know, like those today that love money. So to hear that a woman and receive a prophecy in which the end times were about to begin and that the church was soon to be secretly removed from any suffering, well, that seemed like really great news to people who are really suffering. As you probably can imagine, due to the people's physical and spiritual famine, this false teaching jumped to life and blazed like a fire through a field of dry grass. Everyone loved it. Who wouldn't? You just keep hoping day after day that something that you are removed from your terrible life, the wealthy, the factory owners, are forcing you to live. We humans are not big on suffering. We Western culture humans, even Western culture Christians, really don't like suffering. Anything that will eliminate suffering, count us in. Forget that the eighth foundational principle of Jesus' kingdom, as he expressed it in his presentation of, of his constitution of his kingdom at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We don't seem to like that one, do we? Since the early church suffered because of their faithfulness to Jesus of Nazareth. How can the church in this country today 
promote an unbiblical teaching in which Christians at the end are spared suffering and martyrdom. Truly, such people are wimps. Wimps. You're a wimp if you believe this false teaching. At the best, and a coward at the worst. You're a coward unwilling to suffer. For, for if cowards, and if you're a coward, note what Jesus says in Revelation 21, 8. Accepting the teaching of a pre-tribulation rapture is similar to this. For it is a teaching that says your life will be spared and that you won't have to stand loyal to Jesus when, not if, it costs you. For one of the main points of the end times is to purify the church. Any compromising of one's relationship with Jesus, no matter the threat, no matter the reason, is serious, just as it was in the early church. If there's anything to prepare oneself for, this is certainly one very, very important one. No one shows up to run a marathon without many months of serious training and preparation. The time to build an ark is before it starts to rain. How much more should there be preparation, even now, of oneself, one's spouse, one's children, one's grandchildren, etc., for what is going to come upon the earth very soon? Pay attention to that time frame. So learn the lesson of the five prepared virgins and the five foolish virgins. Biblical, this is a biblical example of preparation before the storm hits. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. Did you understand? Babylon showed up. But those guys, their parents, they believed Jeremiah. And they began teaching their, their sons how to live, how to endure the spirit of Babylon. Also, I suggest you read the book Night by Elie Wiesel. Wiesel was a Jew who went through the Holocaust. He tells the reader that before the Holocaust, he believed profoundly in the God of Abraham. And yet the Antichrist-like horrors he experienced flushed his relationship with the Almighty. Granted, he was not born again by the Spirit Christian, but, when he, but what he went through emotionally and spiritually is exactly what the real followers of Jesus are going to face. We're going to be pushed to the brink. Most will break. That's what Jesus said would happen. Their love of their hearts will grow cold. So unless you're deep in Jesus and deeply in love, odds are you're going to break. Think of all the warnings about watching and being prepared have no meaning if Christians are going to be suddenly and secretly removed even though all of the warnings about watching and being prepared are addressed to Christians. The apostles understood this. Thus, they taught people to be faithful in persecution. And besides the real clear biblical teachings, which utterly invalidate this false teaching, how about just one very practical point? If it happens that I'm wrong and the church is raptured before anything bad happens, I'm good with that. I mean, suffering and martyrdom don't sound like fun to me, and I'm glad to be exempted from such things if that's what's going to happen. I'm not going to say, no, 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 I'm going to stay here and suffer. I'll be glad. 
And if it, and if, if, as we're all rising up to meet Jesus in the sky before all the bad stuff starts happening, and you happen to see me and say, see, I told you so, I'm going to shrug my shoulders and say, oh, well, my bad. And I'm still spared from the issues of the Great Tribulation, according to this false teaching. In short, there's no downside to me. I could be wrong with this, and it's okay. If this false teaching turns out to be true, I'm not rejected because of that. But if I and plenty of others are right, that the church isn't going anywhere, she's going to be here working in conjunction with her bridegroom king, and thus experiencing tremendous pressure to deny Jesus, to avoid suffering and dying because of him, and you and those you love are not prepared for this, well, good luck. And by the way, the tribulation is not about the Antichrist and his followers and his followers tribulating Christians, which I said a few moments ago. The great tribulation is about the Lamb of God tribulating the Antichrist and his followers with 18 or so judgments, which increase in intensity, but always aimed at reaching the most people at the deepest heart level to produce genuine repentance. Does the Antichrist and his followers retaliate? Do they take it, take out on Jesus' followers what Jesus is doing to them? Yes, it's a war. The enemies of Jesus don't just sit there and take it on the chin. They fight back. And since they can't hurt Jesus, they're going to hurt his followers. And that hurt is a privilege and an honor. Acts 5.41. Here is a snapshot of the church at the end as she participates with her bridegroom king in removing evil from creation. And you'll find this in Acts 4. On the release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Quote, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers together, gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants not to run away, not to hide, but to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. That's the people Jesus is looking for at the end.
Joy. 
built 